Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. I just reminded Jesse that we did meet uh, several years ago at a uh, Navy SEAL reunion here on the West Coast, and of course, a billion people uh, go through those things. Well, maybe not a billion, but thousands, and and um, that was years ago. So um, I'm super stoked to reconnect, Jesse. Thank you very much for your time today. Uh, appreciate it, um, and I know that you you don't carry a phone, and we're sitting here on a landline, and um, Skype calls are out, uh, high tech is out. This is just you and me having an old-fashioned conversation. So. Yeah, absolutely, Mark. No, I, uh, I'm not really a parts unknown. I had a lot of business things this winter and things happening in my life that I didn't go to Mexico yet. When I'm in Mexico, then I'm on parts unknown. But You're right, really now, I'm up here, right now, I'm up here north of St. Paul uh, in my home in Minnesota right now. Okay. All right. Yeah. Where you were governor. We'll talk about that a little later. So I mentioned to you in our pre-call that you know, th- this podcast really is geared toward folks who are uh, into, you know, kind of mastering themselves, uh, seeking, you know, performance improvement, uh, learning to think in what I call the way of the seal, which is the title of my book, which um, the paperback edition, by the way, is going to be launched in February in a couple weeks. And so, you know, everyone on here uh, who's going to listen to this, you know, is a high performer, is a thought leader, is, you know, a business professional or an elite athlete or a warrior. A lot of times we have spec ops guys and candidates, you know, who, who listen to this and try to find some inspiration. So, you know, we're going to keep this positive. We're going to think through how things uh, in your life, how you know, how you learn lessons uh, from the various um, really incredibly cool things that you've done in your life. And... Um, you know, just see what we can uh, ferret out and what we can uh, what we can offer to the world in terms of insight and and uh, you know and inspiration. How's that sound? I, I'm laughing only because I guess we could start off and I could quote Yogi Berra. Yeah. For my life, uh, when I went out there and came to a Y in the road, I took it. <laughs> yeah, I love that. You know, that is so true. Like you, you've had so many twists and turns. I mean, that's part of what I want to get into is like what what was that mindset like? But let's go back to the you know. My connection with you is from the SEAL teams. Sure. How did you get into the SEALs? What was that about? Why did you go into the SEALs? What class did you go into? Well, and, and what were some of the lessons you learned in, in training? Well, first of all, we'll take it back before that. Uh, in school, I was a competitive swimmer. 
Right. So I was always comfortable in the water, being a competitive swimmer. You spend most of your days in the water. And in Minnesota, I'm one of the few Minnesotans I don't even know how to skate. <laughs> if you can imagine that. That doesn't believe that. Because uh, all winter I was in the swimming pool. Right. I had no interest at all with frozen water. I liked liquid water. And I also became a certified scuba diver, I think, in seventh or eighth grade. Nice. And so we used to, me and my buddies, we all were, we would go diving. You know, Minnesota's the state of 10,000 lakes. I think we actually have close to 14. And so I, I was already a completely qualified scuba diver. Uh, I was going to go to college and swim, but then it fell through because of some out-of-state crap. I won't go into it. It's not important. And so then... <laughs> Kind of on the rebound from that, uh, a buddy of mine, Steve Nelson, one day said, let's let's go down and talk to the Navy. We won't sign anything. And, uh, of course, we went down there. And when you get down there, it's like they're flashing a brand-new GTO in front of you, and here's the right. keys to it. You're the greatest right. thing on the planet. Right. And we walked out enlisted in the Navy after stating we wouldn't. <laughs> So did yeah, you uh, learn about the UDP? You get home weekend? and you look in the mirror and you go, what the hell did I just do? Roger that. I know that feeling. <laughs> and, uh, so anyway, back in those days, they had what was called the 120-day delay program, yeah. where you enlisted and then you, you got like three months to goof off. So I, qu I was working for the state highway department after high school. So I saved my money, balanced it all out, so I figured out when exactly I could quit work and how much money I'd have to spend the day I left for boot camp so that I would be totally broke. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have a cent in the world because who cares now? The Navy's going to give me three hots and a cot. You know, I don't, I don't need no money per se. You're going in the military. So I did all that, went off, and, and then, of course, I got to San Diego, and my second surprise in life happened. I got to somewhere in the middle of January where there wasn't snow and the weather was nice, <laughs> which reaffirmed me all the more how I was not going to spend winters in Minnesota. I don't like them. I'm open about that. And that's why today I live in Mexico generally for half the year. And so, but anyway, enlisting in the Navy, both my friend Steve and I, we were, uh, uh, on what they had the U, they called it the UDTCO guarantee where you'd be given a tryout, you could pass the screen test in boot camp and then you'd go to buds. What, what year was this? Jesse? This was, uh, this was January of 70. 70. January okay. of 19. I went, I enlisted November, ironically, of November, or I should say September the 11th of 69. Oh, no, but I had the delay program. So that was the day I officially started as a Navy reservist. But I didn't go on active duty until January of 70. And so then your I went boot to camp boot camp was in San Diego? Boot camp was in San Diego, and then during boot camp, uh, at that time, the, the teams were not a rate. You had to have a rate at something else. The teams were, uh, Bud's wasn't an A school then. Right. And so they, they then sent you to a school, and I got storekeeper school, so I went over to 32nd Street at the time, San Diego. And I went through storekeeper school, graduated from there, so I then became a storekeeper seaman apprentice. Right. And then it was at that point I took the, I, the bus across the Coronado Bridge to the Naval Amphibious Base, and I uh, started up. Uh, I, I got there on Friday. I got no days of pre-training. I got there on Friday, and class started Monday. Oh, that's my other thing with me. 
<laughs> oh my God! I didn't know what from the time ten into the fire. You know, and uh, and uh, so I got there on Friday. Class started Monday, and I remember Tuesday. A, a fun story: we ran the old course. Well, my hands weren't prepared for the old course, and I think I ended up with about three or four of those big flapper blisters right. on each hand. And my instructor, Terry Mother Moy, who's a good friend of mine today, stuck with me through thick and thin. We're very close today. He was my first phase instructor then, and I'll never forget he came out that day with a uh, first aid kit and a table. And he turned to the class, he says, okay, who's got flappers? And I, like a dumb shit, raised my hand. I do instructor. Moy goes, come on up here, boy. So I run up there. I figure, well, I need medical attention anyway. God, I'm bleeding. These things are full of pus. There's sand in them. And, you know, I should be going to the dispensary. <laughs> and uh, Moy looks at me and he says, are you right-handed or left-handed? And I said, I'm right-handed. He said, hold out your right hand. I held out my right hand. He yanked every flapper right off. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there with tears running down my face. It hurts so bad. Then the reason he asked me that, he turns. Now he said, now turn to your class and you do the other hand. Oh, wow. So because I was right hand, it was easier for me to pull them off of my left hand. So I had to stand out there and do the others on the other hand. Then he looks at me and goes, now get back in line, you big dummy. So <laughs> what, what did I learn from that? Never, ever, if you can, bring attention to yourself. That's correct. Never do that. Blend in. <laughs> don't, don't even look an instructor in the eye because he might notice you. <laughs> That's the truth. And so, yeah, I learned that the second day of training. And uh, I think I ran the old course that day, if I recollect right. It took me nearly, I think, 43 minutes. Holy cow. Because they made you do things over and over. <laughs> and, uh, you know, after, as you know, after when you get better, you're doing it down in the 10-minute range or lower, you know. <laughs> but I, I remember the first old course I ran, I think, I, I think my time was 43 minutes. <laughs> so with, with uh, uh, Bud, uh, do you remember, like, some, some real high points and low points of that experience and some lessons that you learned that you might want to share? Well, the lessons you learn is is simple lessons. Really, never give up. Yeah. That uh, you know that uh, it may be horrible now, but it'll end. Right. And there'll be blue sky on the other side of the horizon. And that's the the the, the real attitude I felt you had to take in buds. You had to break down life to what you're doing right now. Right. You can't think about nothing else. I I've told my wife. I said. I went through a period in Bud's for, you know, five months where I had no idea what was happening in the outside world. Mm -hmm. None. Because I didn't, I didn't pay attention to it at all. I, uh, the only thing I remember about, uh, it was July 25th of two, 1970, I had just finished first phase, and I went to, and saw Jimi Hendrix. Mm. In, he played his second to the last United States concert before he died. He then went up to Seattle, then he went across and did the Isle of Wight in England, and then he was dead. I saw Jimi Hendrix in his, I guess it would be his third to last concert he ever did, was July 25th, 1970 at the San Diego Sports Arena. No kidding. Yeah, I'll remember that forever. But that's literally about my entire outside contact to the world when you go to Bud's. But at least I got to see Jimi Hendrix. It was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's got to be heads down, front side focus, just one day yeah. at a time. Yeah, and one step at a time. Whatever you're doing right now, and that's all you pay attention to. I remember my most hated song then was The Carpenters Close to You. Don't remember it. Close to you, da 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 close to you. It's way before your day. But they had the radio would come on every morning, and they'd play that thing. And, you, and they'd play it right before you had to go out there. Right. And it became my most hated song. I couldn't, I, even today, I can't stand to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a mantra or some sort of internal dialogue that was... You know, that could override uh, any negativity or any doubt back then? No, to me it was simply, when I went to Buds and Coronado, we were still on the Bay side. Right. We weren't on the Strand. We were actually the first class that went over to the Strand. But we didn't get that till second phase. Mm-hmm. And they used to have you do about faces out there and look across at 32nd Street at all the gray monsters. Right. Ships. And they'd simply say, okay, anyone that wants to go to one of those, get out of here. Yeah. And that was my inspiration more than anything. (laughs) I really didn't want to, I wanted to be a frogman. Right. And, and, you know, I saw the movie with Richard Widmark, which many of us old timers saw, the frogman. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so it it was just that, that, that was the inspiration for me was just, uh, uh, to be a frogman. They were special. I, I will say this today, and it's a bit of a negative, but I, I gotta say it. Uh, back in the '60s, it was the Green Berets who got exploited. Right. All you heard about was the Green Berets, the Green Berets, the Green Berets, and mm-hmm. the teams, or the Seals, or the UDT Seal at that time. We were under the radar. Right. Nobody knew who the hell we were. Yeah, they didn't even wear those on our greens. You know. And uh, I preferred it that way. Today, today, unfortunately, the SEALs have replaced the Green Berets right, right. as being out front of all the publicity, the books, the movies, and all that stuff. Right. And I particularly don't like it, and I'll tell you where it hit me hard. A couple months ago, they were interviewing an Army Ranger here in the Twin Cities who had returned from Afghanistan and Iraq and all the stuff over there. Mm-hmm. And they asked him what he did over there. And his quote made me hang my head, and because you know what he said? Right. He said, I'm an Army Ranger. I don't discuss what I do on deployment. I'm not a Navy SEAL. Oh, my God. And I heard him say that, and I, and I, I dropped my head in, in, in actual shame, Mark, yeah. because I don't like that, the direction that it's gone with us as far as the publicity and all the stuff that goes with it today. Right, right. It's a little out of control. I know it's trying to rein him back in, but well, he's it, out of the bottle. It, it, became, it became using your experience in the teams to make money right. off those experiences. Now, it's one thing to use like you're to, to do what we're doing today. We're using our experience in the teams to guide us through the rest of life and what it does for you. Right. And, and, and my, that's my, my, my vision is to inspire and to educate people. Exactly. See, we lived, in my day, we lived under the Las Vegas rule. What's, what happens on deployment stays on deployment. I remember when I came back from my first nine-month deployment, we, the, 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 the My Lai Massacre had just broken. 
Right. You know, with, with Lieutenant Kelly and all that, right. we got pulled into the briefing room by our captain, and we were given direct orders not to discuss anything that we did overseas, anywhere. And I still abide by that. You know, when I talk about things and stuff, generally I only talk about buds and I talk about stuff that happens stateside. Right. I, I did two tours. I did 17 months in Southeast Asia. And uh, I don't discuss what anything that I did. And I didn't do nothing over there. I was at the tail end. We were getting peace with honor by then with Richard right. Nixon. Right. <laughs> right. And I so say that tongue-in-cheek and sarcastically. <laughs> Roger that. I, I think there's something important uh, I want to highlight. Cause I, um, I also um, own NavySeals.com. You know, I thought I registered that uh, domain and, and website back in uh, 96. And I did it because I figured if you know someone was going to do it, it better, it better be a, a SEAL team guy. Yeah, be a team guy. Yeah, teammate, sure. <laughs> but anyways, I used to get a lot of, uh, you know, I had forums, and a lot of people would come on and say, hey, you know, Jesse was UDT, he wasn't a SEAL. And I was like, you know, screw you, that, that you, you got it wrong. UDT and SEAL were the same, went through the same training, and guys crossed over and back and forth. So I just want people who are listening to this to understand that UDT and the SEALs were the same, right? The same guy. Exactly. In fact, I can tell you this. My friend Steve, he ended up the class behind me, right? Well, when I graduated, they sent me, I went to UDT 12. They sent me to jump school. They sent me to SEER school. And then they sent me to SEAL, what they call SBI, SEAL cadre. Right. I completed that and was heading on my first deployment before Steve graduated from Buds. Right. And once you did SBI, you were a completely trained SEAL. Right. SBI is now called SQT. So Whatever it is today, I don't know. Yeah. You know, but but back well back then we called it SEAL cadre, and right. that's where you went and your instructors were the guys who had just gotten back from Vietnam. My major instructor was the late Dave Bodkin. And Dave, I think, had, I don't know how many, six or seven tours to Vietnam. In fact, I ran into Dave at a reunion in Colorado, and we were sitting by the fire, and Dave was a big, he's, he died in a car crash. But Dave was a big, bearded, slow-talking guy. And and I looked at Dave one day at, at the fire at this reunion, and I said, Dave, I said, so did you do 30 years in the Navy? He said, oh, no, no. He said, I got out at 20. I said, really, why did you get out after just 20? He said, well, the war ended. And he said, I really wasn't a very good peacetime sailor. <laughs> and I just thought, a lot of people fall into that category. I thought, holy Christ. <laughs> right. You know, but, you know, Big Dave Bodkin was my SEAL, my cadre instructor. So what people fail to realize, I was in when there was still UDT. And actually, let me make this argument. In my day, the UDT guys were actually the more elite. You want to know why? Yeah. Okay. When every class would graduate in my era, they would always look at your aggregate swim times. Mm-hmm. And the stronger swimmers were always sent to UDT. Mm-hmm. And the guys who weren't as good as swimmers went to SEAL team. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, back then, the SEALs were kind of an experimental unit. No yep. one really knew what their focus was. And ours was... would be more water. We were going to yeah. spend, UDT spent more time in the water. Right, and you had to yeah. do all the submarine work and the lockouts, and yep. you know, that's the hard that's the hard work of the SEAL team, working in and on the water. And also, you had all the momentum from the UDT in World War II and Korea and Vietnam, So, but basically, the whole force started out from UDT, 
And then well, it actually started UDUs, underwater demolition units, and then there was right. scouts and raid. There was more right. stuff. With I met a guy from class one <laughs> at a reunion, an old timer, right? You know what I said to him, Mark? I said, if you're class one, who the hell were your instructors? Right. <laughs> you know, who, who were your? I mean, like you're in the first class. And, yeah, who were yeah. the instructors? <laughs> That's a great question. No kidding. You know, so, but, uh, no, it, uh, and getting to what you want, the motivational, I think the greatest thing, and people have heard this many times, is the greatest thing you get out of graduating buds and being a member of the fraternity is that you know that uh, you you will see a job through. Right. And you will, and when the going gets tough, you're not going to give up on it simply because it got tough. You'll then start using your brain to figure out how to make it not so tough. Yeah, and you know what else? You can rely on your teammates to have the same attitude. Yeah, that is rare. Yeah, exactly. You know, they, you know that the people around you are going to be carrying their end of the log. Right. Although you guys had it easier in your day, I bet, than we did, and I'll give you one simple example. You want well, to hear I, the correspondence, I had the correspondence course, so mine was probably a little bit easier. No, no, no. Not, but here, 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 I'll give it to you. When, when they used to, today, when they cut boat crews, they do it by height. Right. We didn't. You didn't? Shit. <laughs> we had, I had Ricky D's and Billy Hill on the front of my boat. Yeah. 90% of the time we were running with that raft, it wasn't even touching their heads. <laughs> that Hill meant met four with... of us because the officers carrying the paddles. Right. That meant four of us were carrying the whole damn boat. I don't know why they let your officers carry the paddles. I was an officer. I certainly didn't carry paddles. I was running in that boat with everyone else. Well, the officer would blend in now and then, but his job was when you're running, he carried the paddles. <laughs> and then the other, the other supposed six would carry the boat, but in my case, they didn't do it by height. Right. And 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 Ricky and Billy are two. They're great guys and tremendous oh, yeah. operators, but they're short guys. Yeah. yeah Billy <laughs> was my master chief when I when I showed up as SEAL Team Three. What a great guy. Billy Hill. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. No, Billy was in my boat crew. That's cool. Yeah, Billy. Billy's in my boat crew, man. And you, so you know how short he is, the little. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I'm six foot four. So how long did you spend in the teams? And talk about transitioning out. Like what? What made you get out? And well, then, um, what, what I'll, I'll, I'll state that I, in a way, I, you know, I didn't do what Dave Bodkin did, but the war ended. Right. And I was never going to make it a career. You know, I went off because my country needed me. I felt and. That's what you did. Everyone in my family, including my mother. I, I have a rare family. My mother and father are both World War II vets. Really? Not too many people can say their mom is. No kidding. What yeah. did she do? That's she was a nurse in North Africa. Wow. In World War II. And, yeah. I, you know, she's buried at uh, Fort Snelling National Cemetery here in Minneapolis. With full, she was a lieutenant. God bless her. You know, and uh, and uh, so I came from a family. In fact, a funny story. My dad was Army. He he was under, uh, the, I think, the 699th Anti-Tank Division under Patton. And his, his, here's what his, he, he, my dad opposed the Vietnam War before the hippies did. Right. I would come home from school, and my dad would be bitching about the Vietnam War and how phony it was. And uh, and so when I decided to go in the service, here's what my dad's advice was to me. He said, look, 
If you're going to go in the service, he said, stay the hell out of the Army and the Marines. Go in the Navy or the Air Force. He goes, they'll at least teach you something. <laughs> and lo and behold, what I do, I go in the teams, which is, when I'll, I'll give you this. When I got out of the Navy, you were qualified for a year of unemployment, right? Right. So I went down to the unemployment office, and I sat down, and they give you a counselor. He says, well... You're just getting out of the Navy, da-da-da-da, what can you do? And I looked at him and I said, diving, demolition, and parachuting. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, gee, that could be kind of difficult getting a job. I said, right, so give me my first check. <laughs> so I kind of went against my dad. I ended up wearing greens and doing the crazy stuff we do that doesn't always transition to too many jobs out here in the civilian world. You know, nothing has changed, Jesse. I mean, guys, I, I come across guys all the time who um, they, they get out and they're transitioning. They're like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do, and these skills don't transfer. But, you know, they're getting a lot better these days translating those skills into, you know, into well, marketable stuff. You know what my initial transition was? Mark, you'll love this. I started riding Harley Davidsons, and it would always get a new one whenever I'd come back from deployment because you'd go overseas and spend no money, and bikes were nice in California, cheap. Yeah, they were cheaper for military guys too, right? So oh, yeah. Quite yeah. a racket. You buy one and then sell it when you get off deployment? Yeah. Well, anyway, I came home, and, and I, I, it was amazing they never found out about it when I ran for governor because I don't hide it. I came home, prospected, and became a full-patch member of the Mongols Motorcycle Club. <laughs> that was your job? No, I, I, I actually did it while I was still in the Navy. Oh, no kidding. I used to leave the base and put my colors on. No kidding. Oh, yeah. And I talked to the officers later, and I said, you know, how come you guys never... They said, well, we knew you were getting out, and you raised a few eyebrows, but we all kind of said... He's only got a month more to do. Who gives a shit? Let him do what he's going to do. <laughs> you know, no, I, 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 so I made a transition, believe it or not, from the Navy to the Mongols, and that actually helped because outlaw motorcycle clubs are very much built like the military. You have officers yeah, well, and it's you have members. Trunks. Right, yeah. And so there's rituals, there's um, yep. a, a shared value system, you know, just like the military. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah, and so, you know, and I was in the Harleys then, so I rode with the Mongols and actually rose to Sergeant-at-Arms, third in command. <laughs> so I was allowed to keep my colors when I left. I still have them today. That's hilarious. I don't know why I find that funny, but that's really cool. Well, it was, you know, I, 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 we'd get pulled over now and then by the cops, and they'd look, and I'd have a military ID, and they'd look and go, what are you with these guys? And i say, they like to ride motorcycles. So do I. Yeah. You know, not, and right? they just shrug and say, "Get out of here," right. you know, and off I, you know, off I go. But uh, no, nah, it was just it was it was a life that had a mystique to it, and in a way, maybe the teams did that to me. I I I like to go out on the razor's edge every now and then, and so I thought, let's see what this life is about of an outlaw yeah. biker. Yeah, it's kind of appealing. I'm starting to get an interest in it myself as you're talking. <laughs> I had a Harley for a few years. Now I'm thinking I want another one. I've been talking to my wife about it for the last couple of years, and she's not a big fan, obviously. But. Yeah, my wife isn't either. I have one in the garage and all that, but it doesn't get rode much anymore. But uh, no, it you're was talking just about your wife. You're talking about your wife or the the, uh, the motorcycle? Okay. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, so I still have one too. You know, I I built a custom one actually, and it's sitting in my garage. 
But uh, cool. no, it was a good transition to do that. And then from there, I then came back to Minnesota and I went to college for a year. And while I was at college, I stumbled. I was lifting weights and I was up to 230 some pounds playing college football for one year. And then I saw pro wrestling. And okay. when I went to college, I went on the GI Bill. Right. So I didn't have to name a major. And I really got into theater. I actually did Aristophanes the Birds, a Greek comedy in college. No kidding. Yeah. Well, that's something and, most people probably don't know. Well, uh, and so when wrestling came about, I thought, wait a minute. This is exactly fits me. Number one is athleticism. And number two, it's, it's theater. Yeah. Right. I can combine both. I can be an athletic actor. Mm -hmm. And it just appealed, and so then I, I trained for seven months, three nights a week, two hours a night, for, and uh, then went off and had my first match in 1975 in Wichita, Kansas, working for the then Kansas City promotion. And you, you, uh, you wrestled under the name Jesse the Body, right? Well, I wrestled under the name Jesse Ventura. There was, first it was surfer Jesse Ventura, then it was Jesse the Great One Ventura, and then it finally <laughs> settled in when I got into the AWA of Jesse the Body Ventura. I see. And, and how, did I, get it, how did I get the name Jesse Ventura? Simple. Right. Yeah, I, I uh, know that. I always loved the... I, I got the great... When you're a villain, and I was a villain, mm -hmm. well, you don't want people to know your real name for safety purposes. Right. Because the people... Some of the fans get pretty radical. Right. They, sure. And they can be dangerous, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. You know, I said... I, I probably came closer to death wrestling at times than I did in the Navy. <laughs> you believe it? No, true stories. I believe it. You know, I had knives pulled on me coming back from rings. All this stuff went on in them days. But uh, I, I always, I, I, I got the ability to name myself. Now, who gets a chance to do that in life? I know. Your I parents like name you. So I always liked the first name Jesse. And then I thought, I want to be from California. I got the bleach blonde hair. I want to be a surfer, you know, the surfer attitude in wrestling. And so I picked up a California map and started matching Jesse to names. And when I saw Ventura, California, Jesse Ventura, the light went off. Very cool. I said, there's the name. So what was your original name? My, my real name is Jim Janos, James Janos, J-A-N-O-S. Did you have a? Country. Did you have a? This is just popping in my head. But didn't you have a brother who went in the navy with you? Yeah. Or well, he was before me. Was he? Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I remember reading that somewhere. So you became Jesse Ventura, and so what? Like, what were the highlights of your WWF kind of career? How long did it last? What? what well, I wrestled. I, well, WWF didn't turn into what it is today until the mid 80s before right. that there were like 18 different regionalized wrestling territories around the country you had the wwf you had the awa you had the nwa and so i wrestled for 15 years roughly from age 24 till age 39 damn and, uh, and, then, and then i fell into the broadcasting because i had i had i i got hit in san diego the night before i was to wrestle hogan for the world title in la I was struck down with pulmonary emboli, blood clots in my lungs. Mm. And I ended up at the Sharp Cabrillo Hospital in San Diego. I was critical for seven days. My wife had to fly out. That's how critical it was. And so when I was recouping, I eventually got back in the ring again. But while I was recouping, Vince McMahon came up with the idea to put a villain on the microphone. <laughs> and he said, do you think you could do that? I said, sure, I could.
And so then I became, I did the transition where I wrestled and did the microphone. Mm-hmm. And, and then pretty soon I was making more money talking than I was wrestling, and I thought it's a good time to quit. Mm-hmm. You know, I can still make good, great money, and I don't have to get body slammed anymore. Right. You know, so How then much I made... was uh, choreographed versus, you know, real wrestling? Well, you've got to remember, it's, I like to refer to pro wrestling as ballet with violence. Right. They're tremendous athletes. Right. And when you, you have to learn how to wrestle. That's how I spent seven months. Right. There's no, you don't go in and rehearse the day before the match. Okay, so there's no, like, real choreography. You just basically know how to you know execute the doing. moves without killing the other person. But yes. you're not... And, yeah. you're, and you're both trained to the extent that you can have a match with anybody. Right, exactly. Because certain, it's like it's like ballroom dancing, and the villain leads the match. Right. If you you know how ballroom dancing goes, the man leads. Right. Well, in wrestling, the villain leads. Okay. Are the outcomes preordained, or sure. were they completely random? Yeah. No. They you they just come done. in and tell you who they want over, and then you figure out how you want to do it. <laughs> with help fun. from them. Yeah. Okay. No, it's, a sh- it's an athletic show. Right. I, I, I talk freely about it because Vince McMahon went to court to get out of it. We used to be governed by the athletic associations in the states. All they were were parasites in every state. They'd take your money, they'd make you get a license, and they didn't do a damn thing for you. Right. So Vince went to court in New Jersey and said, we are, we are not an athletic competition, we're entertainment. Why do we need to be governed by an athletic commission? And the courts agreed. And it was right. great. We got them out of the... Shoot, they were nothing but parasites. Mm-hmm. You know, no, it's, 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 it's sports entertainment is what wrestling is. Now, bear in mind, it's, when you do it, it beats the crap out of you. I imagine. I wrestled one time 63 consecutive nights in a row mm. without a day off. And when you, okay, look at it this way, Um, a backdrop, that's where they throw you into the ropes, you come off the ropes, they catapult you up in the air, and you come down flat on your back, right? Mm -hmm. Ric Flair used to take three to four of them a match. He would wrestle 300 times a year. That means he would take 900 backdrops a year, just that, and he wrestled for 30 years. That means he took 27,000 of them. Yeah, and, if he what mi- wait, and if he misses on one of them and lands wrong, he could get paralyzed. Right. If he doesn't get over and say he lands on his head and breaks his neck, because right. it can happen. Yeah. So judge wrestling by look at them and, and, and think, okay, when Macho Man used to jump off the top rope with the elbow, right. if he's off by two inches, I'm dead. Right. Yeah, I imagine you had to have great trust in your... Well, here's what teammates. you're taught, Mark. When you, the first day I went into wrestling camp, you're told, treat your opponent's body as if it's yours. Right, right. Because if you hurt that guy, he can't make money, and then his family doesn't eat. Right. Well, that's a hell of a cross to bear, ain't it? No kidding. If you're the one that hurt him. Interesting. It's, it's a fraternity, just like the Mongols and just like the teams. Yeah, I can imagine. Same thing. I've been in all these fraternities all my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, some of them have a, a few different uh, qualities, like politics. I wouldn't, I'm not sure I would call that a fraternity. That's not a fraternity. <laughs> in fact, I'll That's give you one on that. I'm, I'm the ultimate independent. I, I've told people, they said, why did you only serve one term as governor? You could have been reelected easy. I said, here's why. I said, after spending four years with the Democrats and Republicans, you feel like you need a shower. I can imagine. That's the best you way mean, I can describe it. I want to come come back to the governor thing, but you also you also said you were going to serve one term, and you did, and I thought that was pretty cool. Well, I, I, I'll do two because we allow our president to do two if I ever, but I believe that that public service is what it is. You're supposed to go there and serve, and when you're done, go on to something else because you shouldn't be making a career out of it. I agree, 100%. And that's what's wrong with our country today. We've got nothing but career politicians in there. Why do you think Trump's doing so good? Yeah. Because people are tired of the career politician. Right. Hey, Lesson, before, before we head down that road, because I definitely want to talk about yep. that, I think I'm, I'm super interested in how you, got, how you went from uh, wrestling into the movies. Because um, you did some really fun movies like Predator and Running Man. And how did well, that, Was that during your wrestling career, yeah. or how did you get hooked up with Arnold and to do those kind of things? Well, when, re- when wrestling hit big... It was the talk of the country. We were on Saturday Night Main Event, NBC. We got the higher ratings than Saturday Night Live would get. We got the biggest ratings for what they call a late-night special in history. Uh, right before WrestleMania three, we did Saturday Night Main Event on NBC, and we actually did, I think, a 34 share, which meant one out of every three televisions were tuned in. No kidding. Yeah, one out of three, and that's unheard of. And, well, when that happens you get this notoriety comes on you like a, a waterfall. Right. And so I would I had an agent then and I and my agent I said every time I wrestle California I want to get booked out there because he would take me to different casting calls. He said, Are you interested in doing movies? I said, sure. And one day I was out there and he said at two o'clock you're going to meet a lady named Jackie Birch. She's casting the next Schwarzenegger film, Predator mm-hmm. and there's a part you're perfect for. Sergeant Blaine, six foot four, two hundred and fifty pound train killer. <laughs> so to me, awesome. I thought, Jesus, this is a. I used to do that. Right. I don't have to act. I, I used to do it. You know. You know. We all got so well trained. You could do this with in your sleep. Right. And so uh, I walked in and I looked. I had hair to my shoulders, six earrings, a big braided goatee. And Jackie was a little short girl. She looked me up and down twice, and she said, let's go meet the executive producers. She (laughs) took me across the lot. I met Joel Silver and Larry Gordon. She then brought me back and said, read this line, and it was a bunch of slack-jawed faggots around here. This stuff will put hair on your hog leg, make you a goddamn sexual tyrannosaurus just like me. (laughs) You know, and that was the line in the helo. Right. Yeah, when I was trying to get people to chew tobacco with me. Right. She then told me, take this script home, read it, and in an hour they made me an offer. Vince wasn't going to let me do it, so I had to quit wrestling. I see. So I quit wrestling and went off and did Predator. Then while I was doing Predator, Arnold came up to me halfway through filming, and he said, Jesse, my next film, The Running Man, there's a part in there you're perfect for. I'd like for you to do it. I said, great. So when I came back, I negotiated Running Man, and then Vince needed me back for the main event and all that. So I then had Running Man in my back pocket. So when I went back to Vince, here's the thing I'm most proud of. I went into the Wrestling Hall of Fame in 2004. 
I'm not the proudest of my wrestling. I'm proud of the fact I am the first wrestler that brought an agent into the business. Right. Because I forced Vince to get me back to deal with my agent. And he did it. That's how bad he needed me back. And I had the running man as ace in the hole if he said no. See, in wrestling, you have to have the ability to walk away. Right. And then good things will happen for you. True in everything, isn't it? If you're not willing to walk away, then then you're in it for the wrong reason. Yep. So you won't make those hard right choices. Exactly. And there's another thing dating back that I credit Bud's for. Right. You know, that's what it created when it created me. Right. Was that I have the courage to walk away. Right. Because I and yeah. why? Because I have a confidence in myself that I can walk away and still succeed. Right. And let people know this too. There's nothing wrong with losing. No. Absolutely. You get knocked down. It's the person that won't get up. Right. You can no, get knocked would... down, but just get back up. Yeah, and I would go a step further in saying it's it's critical to lose. I mean, it's critical to fail. It's where we learn our hey, most valuable lessons. It's no different than when you t- when you're in buds and your rubber raft gets dumped over by a wave. Right. What exactly. do you got to do? Get back in it. You got to upright it, get the water out of it, and keep going. Exactly. It's the same thing. So I can see how they like the seal experience. Kind of propelled you, well, of course, into your motorcycle gang, and then you got into WWE. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We are not a gang, we're a club. It's got MC. That means yeah. motorcycle club. Got it. I'll, I'll revise my. That's like Rudy and the dolls. That ain't a doll, it's an action figure. <laughs> Roger that. And then the WWF, and then in the big. So each one of these is kind of like a. You know, a bigger version of yourself, you know, but they all build on each other and you're getting more and more confident. And is that, you know, because, and you're getting a lot of exposure, which probably gave you a lot of confidence to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to step into the political realm and see if I can make a difference. And well, is that what was going through your head, or how did, how did no. you go from now, from acting into, the, you know, into um, politics? Being a well, the, the political end happened in my neighborhood. I, I was living in a quiet little neighborhood along the Mississippi River, Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, and the local city wanted to, we didn't need stormwater, sewer, and gutters. We were an old community. Uh, the water filtered down in ditches, and we had no problem. And they wanted to come and assess us storm, sewer, and water that was going to cost us all ten, fifteen thousand bucks a piece in our taxes, and they were going to pump the water into this wetland, which we found not acceptable. They won't let you pump it into the Mississippi River. Why should you be allowed to pump it into another into a wetland where there's wildlife and all that? So I, I started getting involved and in going up to City Hall. And one day, I, and this issue came up, and they ended up voting us down. 450 of us signed the petition, mm-hmm. and we were voted down seven to nothing. <laughs> and I thought, wait a minute, a slam dunk? I could have maybe accepted five to two or four to three, but seven zip? Right. And then I realized it was a group of good old boys. And so I started getting involved, and one day I had the podium, and I turned to the 25-year incumbent mayor. And I said, you're going to make me run, aren't you? And his buddy on the council burst out laughing and said, you can't win. Well, guess what reared its ugly head then? Buds. Buds reared its head then. Because I was being told I couldn't do something. Right. And the one thing I was trained at is, no, you probably can do it if you put your mind to it. Absolutely. 
And so uh, I walked out of City Hall knowing I was running for mayor. This was 1990. I ran for mayor against the 25-year incumbent. I defeated him 67% to 33. Nice. I won every district in the city. I served four years as mayor. We rousted out the good old boys. It took us two or three elections before and mine and then after. We rousted and got rid of them. And I did a one four-year term, and then I moved on, and I bought my wife her dream ranch. Four years later, there was a huge budget surplus of money. It was the Clinton era. Everybody had money. Right. And they had billions of dollars of surplus money at the state, and they kept it and spent it. Hmm. And I was doing talk radio at the time, and I said, wait a minute. They budgeted for this. They have no right because the economy's powerful and they're overtaxing to just keep that money. Right. They need to live within a budget. That money should be given back to the taxpayers. Right. And I made right. the mistake on talk radio. I said, maybe I should run for governor. And it took off like wildfire. Hmm. And then, of course, I had to get, to get suspended from my radio job the minute I went down to to uh, with my candidacy because they don't let you do that. Right. Even though my two opponents got to collect tax dollars, for one the mayor of St. Paul and the other the attorney general, they were collecting government checks while they weren't working, they were off campaigning. Yet I, from the private sector, had to lose my job for six months. Right. Well, I, you know, back to your earlier statement, that's, that's what's also wrong with the whole thing. I mean, I look at I look at these, you know, the Congress, and, you know, you, literally you've got about a year of work, and then... And you're back on the campaign trail. Yeah. You know? And then and then they've created a system. We'll get political here for a moment. They've created a system based completely on the concept of bribery. If you do bribery in the private sector, you go to jail. But in the public sector, it's the status quo. You're not going to get in to see that senator unless you bring a check with you. Trust me. Interesting. Yeah, no, trust I, me. I, I do trust you. I believe you. I don't think anyone... And I can me. say this. Let me brag a minute. I, when I ran for governor of Minnesota, I, uh, let me back up. I came home from school one day, and my dad said to me, all politicians are crooks. And I said, come on, Dad, they can't all be. He said, yes, they are. You want to know why? My dad only went to eighth grade. I said, why, Dad? He said, because they spend a million dollars on a job that only pays a hundred grand. <laughs> and I sat, and that stuck with me my whole life, what my father told me. Because I thought, nowhere else do you spend more money than what the job's going to pay you. Right. So that tells you right away there's got to be corruption, right? Mm -hmm. Right there. And so I can tell you this. When I ran for governor of Minnesota, I, I took no PAC money. I took no special interest money. I took $50 donations from citizens. And I actually made more money doing the job than what I spent to get it. I only raised $300,000 to become the governor of Minnesota. Yeah, that's amazing. And I made 480. Right. So I could look to my dad if there is a heaven, and, and if he's there, I could look to my dad and say, Dad, your son's not a crook because I made more money doing the job than what I spent to get it. <laughs> I'm sure he's proud of you. Well, that that, that's the one thing. That's the regret I have in my life. People have often said, do you regret anything? I regret that my parents were both gone when I became governor. Yeah, I bet. But my mom predicted it. She had one of those weekends right before she passed where the, all the friends came over. Mm -hmm. And she told one of my best friends to watch out. I'm going to do something big. 
Nice. And lo and behold, it was three years later I became the governor of Minnesota. Right. So my mom knew it was going to happen, I think, or something what? was going to happen. That, yeah, most most moms do. They're pretty intuitive that way. What With your governorship, um, what were some of the, the biggest challenges and lessons learned from that experience? That well, dealing with the Democrats and Republicans. I had a situation where I had a Republican-controlled House and Democratic-controlled Senate. So it worked out good for three years. Generally, whoever I sided with prevailed. Right. But then the last year, I became the most powerful man in America. You know why? No. My last year in office, the Dems got in bed with the Republicans, and both of them went against me. Huh. Now tell me anyone else in the country that can make that happen. Just the president. <laughs> No, 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 not even the president. Only I could. Get the Dems in bed with the Repubs? Both of them against you? I'm the only one that can do it. Yeah. So that makes me the most powerful then, right? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you got to really piss everybody off. It's it's to be laughed at, you know. But think about it. No, they they teamed up against me my last year. They overrode my budget, and they ended up for political... I then fooled them. I didn't see a second term, so they were stuck with their budget, and Minnesota ended up, I think, four to five billion dollars in debt because of it. No kidding. Because they wouldn't take my budget, they took theirs, which theirs was fiscally unsound, and they thought they were going to saddle me with it and that I'd get blamed for it, but I fooled them. I didn't run. Right. So they got it. Saddled with it. Was the public wise enough to figure that out? They know it now. I get people every day coming up to me saying you were the best governor Minnesota ever had. Nice. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the UDT. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.